0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now, joining me this week on the podcast is Hector Nuns, one of Snooker's leading journalists and the author of a brand new book, the Crucible's Greatest Matches. This is a rundown of 20 classic matches held at The Crucible. Of course, this year it's the 40th anniversary of the World Championship being staged at the famous Sheffield Theatre. And Hector's uh, done a great job with this book. He's uh, spoken to so many people who are involved in the matches themselves. So he's got interviews with the likes of Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan, many others as well, Sean Murphy, Peter Ebdon, Ken Doherty. The list really does go on and on of legends of the game, plus some of the runners-up, Jimmy White, Matthew Stevens talking about the near misses. And what's great about that is it puts all the matches into historical context. It's not just a rundown of the breaks and the run of play within the matches. It's actually hearing contemporary recollections of what happened. It's an absolutely fascinating book. I think snooker fans will really enjoy it, particularly, of course, at this time of year. It's published by Pitch Publishing. It's out on April the 14th, so the day before the World Championship itself. And Hector uh, will be taking plenty of copies to the Crucible. They'll be on sale there at the merchandise stand. And, of course, you can get them online as well. So uh, I hope you enjoy the chat. This is the Snooker Scene Podcast with Hector Nuns. Well, Hector, congratulations on the book. Before we get to it, uh, just chat about your sort of introduction to snooker you do actually talk about this in the, in the introduction to the book but how did you sort of discover the sport
1: yeah well as you say it's a bit of a, a, bit of a lengthy preamble into <laughs> in the book where I, I do go a little bit into sort of how I how I sort of fell in love with the sport and, uh, and also to, got into journalism I think with snooker I um yeah I was probably a typical kid had a six by three table when I was I don't know 12 or 13 at home used to play with my brothers. Love the sport And we sort of got a bit older I was obviously watching it on, on TV All the, the big tournaments on the BBC um, And we got to school We started being able to sort of Get out of school a bit You know, when you were 16 we Started going going down to a snooker club um, In Lansing, in Sussex Which is just a, a short, short distance from Stenning Where I was at school and, uh, yeah, always liked it. I just, I just loved it. First got shown a table by my uncle, probably when I was about nine or ten. It was at Effingham Golf Club in, uh, in Surrey. And I just thought it was just a really cool game. It was incredibly difficult to play, but uh, I think, as I say, say in the book, endless possibilities. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, always, always loved it from then. So, and uh, that's
0: just true of a lot of people of your age, but you ended up... Uh, in the position of, of writing
1: about it, so how did how did that happen? How did you end up becoming a, a sort of regular on the circuit? Well, I think I was I got into journalism sort of fairly fairly late, um, so I'd done some other things, didn't really know what I wanted to do after college, and um, you know tried some other jobs for, for varying degrees of success or otherwise. <laughs> and uh, and I think I got to a, a sort of a a bit of a road to Damascus moment when I was about thirty thirty one, where I. I you go into these sort of training seminars sometimes in more formal jobs, in office-based jobs, and they, you know, they they ask you what was your dream job, and, you know, what would you have done? And I, I kept on saying I would like to have been a sports journalist, and I just thought, well, really, you you should give this a go. Shouldn't you? you can't go through your whole life saying that's that's what I would have liked to have done. You know, I saw other people were writing. I thought, you know, particularly the two sports that I I like the most, which was football and snooker, I thought I could do as well or better. Um, but it's time to put. You can't just say that. You have mm-hmm. to put it to the test. So, so I started writing a column for my local uh, paper, the West Sussex County Times, about the fortunes of uh, Brighton and Hove Albion, which at that time were, were very very low. Uh, they were down in fourth division. Um, but it was a lot of fun to do. And I went and did a, a course, and then started picking up some sub editing shifts at the Racing Post and the um, Daily Express and the Evening Standard initially, and then eventually got offered a, a job. At the Evening Standard, as a uh, sorry, at the Daily Express as a sub-editor, and then from there, there was a guy who was the snooker correspondent, a bloke called uh, John Tex Hennessy, who I know you you know a legend of of snooker journalism. Um, And we used to—I think I was the only other person on the desk who really liked snooker. So we used to sort of chat over over a late shift until midnight, over various sort of snooker nostalgia and stories and history matches, that sort of thing. And then when he left, he pretty much threw the Crucible accreditation form over the desk at me and said, "There you go. I think you're the only person who, in the office, who might be might be able to make some use of that and um, take it away and see what you can do this year." And from that, that moment, the Daily Express started giving me a little bit of freedom to go and cover the, the big tournaments. And I got to go and cover the World Championship and the Masters and, and the UK as well. And um, yeah, that's that's really that's really how it sort of started actually getting into the professional covering it mm. side of it rather than just being a being a watcher,
0: and what was it like? Sort of suddenly walking into the crucible press room.
1: I think the, f- the first time I do remember because it was uh, I think the first time I went up there was also the first year Darren Lewis from the Mirror was up there, so at least there were two of us who were sort of newbies, rookies that, that year. And um, no, it's quite it's quite intimidating. I mean, some people that you've, you read a lot, you've listened to, you know. Obviously it was you know you sort of Everton's, and um, you know yourself, you were up there. Um, Phil Yates, obviously, you know people that you knew very well, John D. Uh, there's a, there was a great group of, of sort of journalists and I think those were the days where every paper had their dedicated snooker yeah. correspondent and which which actually made it more fun because yeah. there were more people and I mean nowadays you, you know you know yourself I mean there's sort of myself maybe Neil Goulding there's really a lot of the papers only send somebody up for the final perhaps to write one feature colour piece about mm. you know the genius of Ronnie O'Sullivan or something like that and they, they view that as, as proper coverage of a sport mm. which I don't and, and I'm sure a lot of us wouldn't um, but it's 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 a slightly more sort of lonely fire these days in the sense that there's, there's two or three people who are writing for papers rather than the pack of yeah. twelve fourteen. But it was it was a lot of fun. People were great. You know, people like John Docte, who was writing for the Daily Record. Obviously, covered all the great Scottish players. Um, they're all very helpful. I'd had a little bit of a. I've used my first Nuj card to get myself into the old Wembley Conference Centre, where I think I think you might have been there that day, although I didn't <laughs> didn't know you then. Um, just to sort of get an idea of how it worked And I think yeah. I wrote a piece for the, the local Sussex paper, the Argus About Mark Davis, it was the year that he'd got to the, he'd got to the Masters um, So that was, just gave me a bit of an idea So when I you know, got to the Crucible it was, it was slightly easier I think um, And um, no, I really enjoyed it uh, you know, It was a great, great tournament I think I covered the, the 2003 tournament from the office Which I didn't want to, but I had to And then the first one I actually went to was the 2004 one uh, which is uh, where, obviously, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan won his, won his second world title mm-hmm. and, and, and played very well and there were some, some great matches. Yeah, well, speaking of great
0: matches, we'll segue into the, uh, the, the book. I mean, the 40th anniversary of the Crucible, was that kind of the,
1: the catalyst for, for doing this? It, it really was. I think, I, I think um, I'd always wanted to do a book. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's quite a natural progression, I think, for a journalist to, mm-hmm. to write a book. Um, you know, not every journalist can, can write good books, and, and not all books are written by journalists. But I, I, it's a it's a fairly natural natural progression, I think. something I'd always wanted to do personally. And I've probably first started seriously thinking about it about a year ago, um, when um, somebody I had a contact with a with a publisher who's also the sort of head of media at, uh, at Brighton, the football club. Um, and he he, you know, he and his sister run a you know run a run a good publishing company, and. Um, he came to the crucible. I asked him to sort of come up and have a look, just so he got it. And he, he did he did get it. He came and sort of watched a bit of a, a judge Trump match uh, last year, and really really enjoyed it. Really got it. I think they were looking to add to their uh, repertoire of, of sports. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of football and cricket and other stuff. But I think they really wanted to, had to do another snooker book. Had uh, one a few years ago, and and then it was the the, the hook. Yeah, that I, I I was thinking 40th anniversary that's a really good opportunity, that won't come around again for a bit, to write a book, people might be interested and then it was just um, what, what to do, and I, I, it was just really, it was really clear, I, I had a real clarity about it, what I wanted to do, um, in some ways I'd always thought my first book might be a ghostwriting a, an autobiography, but that's, you know, it just for whatever reason, that, that's not the, way not the way it panned out, and I just had real clarity about what I wanted this book to be, I wanted it to be a celebration of uh, the Crucible as a venue of the sport and of the World Championship all of which I love I wanted it to be almost self-contained little stories I wanted to pick the greatest matches so you could you didn't have to read the whole book you didn't even have to read it chronologically you could sort of dip in and out and each one was its own little story so if we were meeting a player for for the first time um, in the book, I could perhaps give it a bit of context, give them a bit of personal background, their, their career, uh, what they've done, and how they've done in the tournament and the season, that sort of thing. Before you actually came to the match itself, and I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to speak to players about it and get their recollections from matches that you know, some of them only a couple of years ago, but some of them, I think the earliest one in the book goes back to 1980. You know, we're talking about matches, you know, 30, 37 years ago, and. Um, you know, in some cases, it's extraordinary the sort of powers of recall of yeah. of, of some of the players of shots and frames and and, and such like.
0: Mm. Whenever I mean, it's twenty matches. Whenever anyone compiles a list, it's always tempting to see sort of what's not on it as much as what is, is on it. But you had to narrow it down. So, what was the sort of what was the sort of criteria?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a very fair question. I, I think. It, I mean, hopefully it, it, isn't, it isn't a sort of beauty contest in terms of the matches that are in and that are out. I, 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 do, I do think it's a celebration of, of of the sort of bigger stuff. That said, obviously you are picking a list. Um, I personally would say that everyone who sort of loves and follows snooker would maybe of what's in the book, perhaps six, seven, eight, nine, everyone would pick. Yeah. Um, and then over and above that, it becomes a little more subjective and... And that that can depend on just so many factors. Sort of, you know, perhaps even down to things like who your favourite players are, the type of match you like. Whether you, it has to be a dramatic sort of final frame finish. Whether it, you know, whether it's a quality or you know, errors and drama. Whether it's um, the fi- has to be a final or a first. Can be a first round match. There's so many so many factors. So you do your best. Um, as I think, uh, you know, Barry Hearn was very very kind to write the forward, of the. And as he said in there, it's a it's a pub argument waiting to happen and uh, i don't as, as as often the case i don't <laughs> think anyone could put it put it better yeah yeah yeah. i remember when i was a kid i
0: got a, a monty python video and it was called parrot sketch not included and literally it had all their greatest hits and they didn't put that on and i was just wondering were, at any point were you tempted not to include the 85 final of I which a lot have been, has been
1: said just to annoy people yeah i think I might have got more publicity <laughs> the book if i hadn't um maybe that maybe that would have been the reverse yeah. psychology uh, thing to do um no, I, but honestly, no. I knew that had to go in. I knew, uh, I, I knew I had to speak to Steve and Dennis, and also one thing I would say about that match: when you're talking to them, it's so so hard to get genuinely new stuff out of it because that you know that final has been covered, talked about, written about, spoken about to, to death, and to get anything sort of fresh on it is is tricky. And I, I'm not I'm not sure. You know, they were both very kind to give me time and, and spoke to me at length about it. Um, uh, you know, a lot of it is perhaps stuff that's slightly, slightly gone over again. But you know, it is not just probably the greatest snooker match at the Crucible, but just a huge you know, in sport generally. It's a hugely iconic moment, and so it had to it had to be there. And I, I think they've they've reflected on it. And um, as with all the chapters, it was a combination of, of their their comments, their interviews, but also you know, research going back. I've spent a lot of time on YouTube and a lot of time poring over. Chris down as Crucible Almanac. Well, I was uh, going to ask you this. Stuff, I was going to
0: ask you like, how how did you go about? Because it's quite detailed stuff in there. Obviously, you also have to watch a lot of these matches, I guess.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think they were armed with the once. You, once you've got your idea, you've got your plan, then it, I think everything sort of be slightly easier in terms of how you go forward. I and mean, it's the same for same for anything in, in life, I'm mm. sure. And uh, so, once I knew what I was going to do, I, I I thought it was. Interviews, so getting the interviews was you know was a big thing. I mean, I had my list, and as you know, you'll have seen in the book, some players feature more than others. So, I think really it came. I I thought I needed Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan, and Jimmy White as an absolute minimum. And if I thought I could get those four, then I thought I had a book, and then I could work towards you know getting everybody else. Um, actually, the last person I spoke to was, was Dennis Taylor, uh, funnily enough, but I, I always was confident that he wouldn't mind speaking <laughs> about the 1985 final. Odd enough, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd be waiting <laughs> for the call, I think. <laughs> um, so I wasn't, even though that was a missing one and it was a very important one, yeah. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't too overly no, that's worried. That's a banker, be, that's uh, a banker, yeah. Overly worried that he, he would speak to me. But once I had those four, and, you know, thank them again very much for their for their time and because, you know, for all of them it was a three, four, five matches... Um, I knew I knew that I had What I wanted And then it was You know as you say Supplementing Those interviews With the You know Going through a lot Of YouTube footage A lot of research Not not just YouTube Things like some of the Life stories From ITV Which I've always enjoyed Some of these players Were very good Contemporary um, You know I've, I've kept a lot Of my own cuttings From the ones Where I have been covering it Obviously not the older ones To going back to those And, and, and going back to Contemporary press conferences um, A lot of which Are filmed anyway um, So putting it all together and then hopefully producing some kind of sort of self-contained story That's, mm. so that was very much the way I went about it yeah but this is I think like I said to you before we
0: started the great strength I think it is the interviews because you're, it's not just a sort of run through of matches you're hearing from the people involved in them you're hearing from the people who've won them you're hearing from the people who lost them and it's fascinating particularly I think the early ones you know as you say the, the recall 30 odd years on someone like Cliff Thorburn to hear about playing Alex Higgins in that final mm. to, to hear from People like Terry Griffiths and Joe Johnson, and, and, and as you mentioned, Stephen Dennis. How, how, how easy was it to, to get hold of these people? Because I mean, we're talking at the all-time legends of the game here. You know, Davis, Hendry, O'Sullivan, Jimmy White, Dennis, Terry, Cliff, and so on and so on. I mean, you've got a, a great collection of interviews.
1: It, 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 it's, you know, I've got to be honest; it's the thing that I enjoy most about my, my job. You know, journalism. I, I enjoy interviewing. I think mm. I'm quite good at it. I, I I love doing it. So that wasn't, even though it's key to the book, it, it was by no means a hardship. Yeah. I but mean, I don't mind. You know, I'll always back myself to sort of hopefully ask half decent questions and, and get some, some, you know, reasonably hot, you know, new stuff out, out of people. And it 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 was difficult, um, but I, I have to say, you know, people were so helpful. Uh, the, the players and and what you benefit from, as you, as you know yourself, are that a lot of these people are still involved at tournaments. Yes. They're there, whether it's as commentators, ambassadors, pundits, they are there. I actually didn't do that many, having said that, I didn't do that many of the interviews at, at the tournament, but I was able to sort of prime them, to just sort of say, I've got this book I'm doing for next year, would it be okay to have a chat to you, in some cases you know, if I was talking to them for an hour and a half, we split it, so we did 45 minutes at one tournament, about a couple of matches, and then 45 minutes about another couple of matches at another tournament, I certainly did that with Stephen Hendry, um, so it, uh, Cliff was a a long and very expensive phone call to uh, Canada. I think my wife wasn't too, too happy when that bill came through, mm. um, but very enjoyable, um, you know, with just incredible anecdotes, and, you know, he's, he's just a great person to listen to mm. talking about snooker. Um, I think Jimmy White, when I phoned him, he was in a particularly good mood and was very happy to speak, and, uh, and then he, as he dropped in at the end, he was sitting on a yacht in Marbella yeah. at the time, which... Uh, but, but the thing is, but Jimmy, about everyone, I guess you rang would have the most reason
0: not to want to really reminisce because obviously we know he, he, you're talking about matches, basically, that he, that he lost.
1: Big big finals that he lost. I think the thing about Jimmy White, which I, I would imagine a lot of people feel, is I cannot believe how somebody who has come so close to winning the thing they wanted most mm. but fallen short is so free of, sort of any bitterness yeah. and rancor. And I think you can only be the way he is if you genuinely, genuinely love the sport mm. Like really, really love it Not just say you love it mm. But really love it mm. And I, I think my respect for him Was hugely enhanced um, With the contributions he made towards the book uh, you know, They were already pretty, pretty high Because he was my favourite player when I was a kid and um, But he, he is able to Overcome those disappointments About which he gets asked mm. All the time, as you know um, And still show that he, he loves the sport and uh, you know I mean, I mean the fact if you looked at his Crucible wins I'm sure he's one of the most successful players in, in Crucible history in terms of matches won there um, he just didn't he just didn't didn't quite win it and he, you know, as we know he was up against you know arguably the greatest player of all time and uh, at his absolute peak and that can happen in sport but he but he, he he was happy. I mean, I don't think it was. That he he wasn't happy talking about it. It's just Jimmy. You know, still is a bit of a bit of a ducker and a diver. Sometimes it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. difficult to sort of pin yeah, down. As a, yeah. Maybe even Eurosport have found <laughs> over the years. Um, but he, you know, when he does speak, he's everyone listens yeah. because what comes out of his mouth is, is pure sense mm. and real insight. Mm. And and I I found that. As much for the contributions for the book as, as I'm sure Eurosport and sort of um, viewers do when he's when he's in the studio. Yeah, Matthew Stevens as well
0: is someone who's uh, lost a couple of finals, lost some semi-finals, and you interviewed him, and I got the sense with him it, it, it did seem to be a little bit of regret. I think he because he was in the final against Mark Williams, so young. I think you say this in the book. There was just an expectation. Well, I've lost this final, but I'll be back next year and year after, and whatever and it'll happen. But as we know, it hasn't happened for him there, and he's still playing, but. You know, he's got to qualify this year. Did you sense there was sort of he's sort of looking back and thinking, actually, I've missed my chance here?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, it's. You know, I think it's very appropriate that you bring that up straight after Jimmy White because I, I think, as I say in the book, you know, he's probably another player that was very popular, and a lot of neutrals would have would have liked the style, the way he played the game. Um, mm-hmm. You know, very sort of fluent, very attacking game. A lot of people, I think, neutrals would have liked to have seen him win a world title. And obviously, he he had that incredible run. You know, this is the finals, but also a lot of semi-finals, all in a relatively short space of time. You know, he was a he was a contender every year for sort of you know whatever sort of eight years or so. And yeah, no, that was one of the more you know more poignant interviews. I'd, I'd agree with you. Um, there was a bit of regret there. I think he. And who can you know, when you get to a final like he did in two thousand, I think he, he just expected the chances to keep keep coming and it doesn't it just doesn't always happen that way. But I, I think he, as much as anyone, was, was very very frank and very very honest about that. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I think sometimes you ring players and it's it's nice to be remembered, you know, that, that obviously the match he, he features in the book was the, the Sean Murphy match, not the final but the one where, where Sean Murphy sort of did the huge comeback yeah. in the quarter final in two thousand and seven. And I think Players at least like to know that they've registered, they're on the radar, that they, those matches they played in are still remembered, um, and that if you, know, if you bother to sort of research it and, and call them about it, then they, you know, they, they often will, will talk about it, even if it's, even if it's painful. And you know, it's 10 years on, that, as you say, that clearly, <laughs> clearly is still, still yeah. painful. Yeah. Stephen Hendry um, <coughs> obviously is going to feature strongly.
0: And, I mean, he's been on this podcast, and what was interesting, I think it's the same in the book, but I spoke to him, is that. He, he still genuinely regrets not beating Peter Ebdon in, in that final. That would have been. I mean, he's already holds the record for seven, and everything else. You think, Stephen, you know, you've done okay, but it rankles
1: with him still. Uh, it, it, really, it really did, <laughs> and uh, I was quite surprised about that. And I think the, the, the two two matches where he said that we were still really. He was talking in the was it a, a loss to Steve James? Was it was another mm. one? Ninety one when he was yeah. first
0: time champion,
1: and he, that one really annoyed him as well. Oh. In fact, he 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 he, he was. He was Visibly bridling, <laughs> talking about it when he was talking about that Steve James match, and you, know, you know that's 1991. I mean, it's uh, and and Peter Ebden one was the same. I think. You know, it's far be it for me to say that he, you know, he didn't respect him enough, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but he, he thought he was going to win yeah. and he thought he was going to win even when he was training and he got back to I think 12-all in that match and he, then he was absolutely certain he was going to win he kind of It's like he'd had his final
0: against O'Sullivan because that was obviously a grudge match at the time Ronnie had said the things that he said which weren't very uh, friendly and there was, I think the feeling maybe even to constitute Henry was, well I've won it now, I've just got to get through the next two days and that's
1: it. Yeah and he's honest about that he <laughs> pretty, pretty much says that in that chapter in the book um, it, was, it, it was a Huge match, the Ronnie O'Sullivan semi-final. That was their, I mean, their second semi-final in a, in a couple of years, wasn't it? That uh, Hendry, Hendry had won um, before the, for the one he went on sort of lose quite convincingly. Um, but he, yeah, it was. He, I think he was, if not quite sort of spent, he was taken a lot out of him. And there had been a lot of controversy over some of the comments sort of Ronnie O'Sullivan had made before the semi-final about, you know. He said something about sending him back to his sad little life yeah. in Scotland and that he didn't, didn't sort of like sort of socialising with H- Stephen Hendry and, and things like that. And you know he'd got a lot of press coverage, a lot of media coverage at the time. And, and those, you know, mentally these things can be quite quite draining. And you go from that into a, really another grudge match because there wasn't any love lost between no. Stephen Hendry and Peter Ebdon at that time. So you're two in a row over you know five days um, against, a, as we know, one of the most durable sort of determined opponents uh, that we've ever seen in snooker and I think Hendry needed to win it quick and when, it didn't, when he didn't win it quick and it was close at the end I think he was, it was always going to be difficult and, and uh, uh, the quotes from Peter Edden I think in that chapter are also brilliant I mean uh, the quotes don't necessarily correspond to perhaps the, the level of the match you know uh, when you're going through the book sometimes the quotes on a particular match are just brilliant and, and Peter Edden's quotes about that final were really memorable you know he described Stephen Hendry as the Biggest, baddest, great white shark, mm-hmm. snookers ever seen. Sort of, so you know, so sort of ruthless and uh, menacing, and uh, and he was determined. They'd had a couple of run-ins in previous tournaments. I think one where he'd shouted out at the Masters before yeah. he'd actually won the match, which really irks Hendry. Yeah. He, he, he never forgot that. And I, I think Stephen Hendry was the biggest fan of his ponytail at the World Championship, and and mm-hmm. all sorts, It he, obviously there were some things that mm-hmm. they didn't quite see eye to eye on. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was it was a it was no quarter given, and and and, Ed, and Edden sort of stood stood up to it. Yeah, yeah. He went toe to toe with him and ended up ended up winning. And it was a it was a hugely painful defeat for Stephen Hendry, you say deprived him of the King Henry the Eighth headlines that we were all desperate to write <laughs> at the time, um, and um, and and also a, a massive massive win for for Edden, having having lost you know lost out a couple of times. Yeah.
0: Well, of course, yeah, but, and he features again uh, later on in, in the infamous Matthew Ronnie Sullivan when he's 8-2 down and goes into grinding mode and, and Ronnie completely falls apart. And I was interested to read both their quotes on that, um, particularly Ebden though, because he, he remains unrepentant, doesn't he? He, does not, he doesn't say, yeah, oh, that was my tactic. He, he, he says, no, I was, I was just playing my game. But he doesn't, he doesn't sort of in any way back down from what he said at the time.
1: Yeah, I, I think that is one of my favourite matches in the book, um, well, not just in in the book, just generally <laughs> at the Crucible. Um, I, I was you know, I was there covering it. It was it was incredible. Um, so I think Ronnie was was he eight two up yeah. um, in that match, and uh, and then re- remorselessly sort of Peter Evans sort of slowed it right down, um, refused to give in. You know the the two I think the most memorable moments were the. Uh, was it three minutes over a shot and then a, a sort of a, a break sort of that took uh, a break of 12 that took more time than, than Ronnie had taken for his 147 against Mick Price? Um, it, it caused huge controversy at the time. It was, you know, was it that Peter Edson was locked in his sort of bubble and you know, intensity and, and just trying his hardest and you know, just wasn't really conscious of how, the, how fast or slow he was playing, or was it that he was doing it deliberately? and in such a manner that perhaps was beyond the rules and he should have been really hauled up by the, by the referee um, uh, Colin Bridget sadly, sadly no longer with us um, and, and that was the debate and yeah. it was a debate that was immediately sort of held in the BBC studio when he went in there afterwards by Hazel Irving and others and, and I, think, I think Peter Ebden was stunned I think he was, he was genuinely shocked he thought he was going to walk in there and everyone was going <laughs> to pat him on the back and say what an amazing comeback yeah. that's one of the greatest wins we've ever seen here and he was genuinely stunned and shocked when the questions that were coming his way were sort of emails from viewers sort of saying, this is appalling, you should be thrown out of the tournament. And, um, and yeah, I, I think the quotes, the quotes from, from Ronnie O'Sullivan, as you say, were also very, very strong yeah. in that chapter. He says it was his worst moment in snooker, I think, along with the grand dot semi-final when he had, had all the problems with his tip and stuff. Um, and, and he describes in excruciating detail the agonies he was yeah. going through watching it mm-hmm. And it's it's just great. (laughs) It's hopefully it's great to read because it was an extraordinary match. And and then of course you know it it went on for months because um, Peter Ebdon ended up suing or attempting to sue uh, Matthew Side in the Times for effectively calling him a cheat. Um, And uh, but as a columnist, he obviously has a duty to to have an opinion rather than just report the facts and and it went to arbitration binding arbitration and and it was found against Ebden and for the Times and Matthew Side. so that was another sort of sour taste that was left between Edmund that he tried to Sort of redress that and, and correct what he saw as an unfair portrayal, and, and, and wasn't successful in that.
0: Yeah, I think this is the thing about the Crucible and the World Championship. Had that happened at another tournament, we probably would have forgotten about it by now. We just sort of vaguely remember it, but it's still. These memories are still raw, and they're still raw for the players involved, aren't
1: they? Yeah, it's the you know it's the biggest, best last tournament of the mm-hmm. season. Um, as a, a more than one player says in the book, what happens at the Crucible can make or ruin your summer. Yeah. Um, uh, or, or your season, actually, yeah. uh, in in a lot of cases in the past. I think particularly when it was a, you know, when the rankings were were less less fluid and your ranking was for the sort yeah, for the yeah, whole yeah. for the whole year. If you know, if you were a good Crucible player, like say Matthew Matthew Stevens, you know, you could you could pretty much safeguard your top sixteen spots and you know, it was really important, and you could do that at the Crucible uh, when there were fewer tournaments, less ranking points to play for, and the. The relative strength of those points was, was much bigger, obviously at Sheffield With the lesser, lesser number of tournaments And, and it was, it, it could absolutely Make or break your, your summer and, um, and I think that, that is uh, One of the reasons why the memories are so, so strong. Let's mm. talk about Ronnie
0: O'Sullivan, who features in quite a few of, the, of these matches. He's not been very expansive in, in media interviews in general of late, but thankfully he was uh, with you. And one of the most interesting chapters I found was the, the match, it wasn't a close match, it's the one where he destroyed Henry in the semis, of 17 4, I think it was. And there was a great quote, there, know. He he was saying about Hendry, and he didn't mean it in a nasty way at all, because he was very uh, repentant about the things he'd said before about it. But he said, uh, he said, yeah, he said, when you're a bully, you don't like being bullied back, and it's true, isn't it? You know, I mean, he had to he had to have that mindset, that he couldn't afford to have any sympathy at all for Stephen Henry that day.
1: No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think I think that that match, I <laughs> would, if, if there were people out there who said maybe that one shouldn't be in there, that's, that's fair enough. I, I would accept that that point of view because. Um, you have the three semi-finals With um, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Hendry the, the 99 one, the 2002 one And the 2004 one So they're all pretty pretty closely grouped together And I didn't really want to have all three of them um, So I, I kind of decided I wanted to leave one of them out And in the end I left the 2002 one out But it could easily have be been either of the other two um, And I, I sort of slightly make the analogy In the, you know I think that, that quote With each chapter I've used a, yeah. a sort of a quote At the beginning of the chapter Which hopefully captures perhaps some essence of, of that match or a USP of it or and I've used that quote at the beginning of that chapter about that you know bullies don't like to be bullied um and I just I just think I just think it was a you know the analogy that I've used in the book is that it's a little bit like if you go to Cheltenham and you know you, you want to watch one of the great horses and you don't want to see it close you want to see them run their absolute best and fastest and destroy the opposition and and be what they are and I I very much saw that semi-final in those in that context. I thought Ronyo know, Sullivan was like a, a thoroughbred; he was just absolutely destroying the opposition. And you know, we weren't talking about some some mug here. We were talking about you know, yeah. seven-time world champion, greatest player ever, king of the crucible, and he, he you know he, he made him look you know, made, made him look ordinary. And for that reason alone, I thought it was an extraordinary match. Um, and. Uh, I don't. I don't think Hendry felt too bad about it in that he. he think you know, things had changed. Say 1999. He knew that he was. He, he expected to win. I think by 2004 he didn't expect to win the world championship. He hoped he would, but he wasn't expecting to. Ronnie O'Sullivan was a proven world champion. He'd obviously won it in 2001. The balance of power had hugely shifted in, in a few years, and so it wasn't a total surprise, but it was. It was an example of, of, a, of a ruthless sort of demolition of a, of a great player and, um, and, and memorable for that, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I think, I think Stephen Hendry and, and a lot of players can accept being outplayed. You can say, OK, I was just outplayed. It's different to losing to Everton in a decider where he feels he should have won. He was just sort of destroyed, and he's done that to people, and he accepts that uh, Ronnie and Sullivan could do it. But talking in general about Ronnie, he seemed—I mean, the, the quotes—he seemed to. Sometimes Ronnie sort of gives the impression that you know he's not that interested in records and not that interested in looking back. But actually, I got the sense that he did enjoy reminiscing about his sort of truthful moments, even the ones that didn't go so well.
1: Yeah, I think he did. I'm, I'm not. I'm not actually. He necessarily agreed with all the play choice of uh, matches <laughs> that that I'd picked of his uh, to go in there. But he was. He was brilliant. And as, as you said, I, I, as with everyone, I was very grateful for his time. But I think that was actually in the UK. A, a you know, very enjoyable sort of hour, hour and a half over over breakfast in, in York. And um, um, yeah, l- luckily, before what <laughs> or mm. two of the, the the recent sort of media media issues, which you know, I understand um, sort of. Yeah, you know, there's always issues with, with the media now and again but um, I was very grateful to, sort of, to him for his time on that one and um, yeah he, he, he did enjoy talking about it I think he, he really enjoyed talking about the Peter Ebden match we've discussed um, and sort of some of the other ones um, I think the last one, the most recent one in the book was the, the Neil Robertson one in 2012 which a lot of people saw as the, possibly the, the real final we know as a, a quarter final um, and that one I picked because of the sort of Steve Peters factor. I mean, Ronnie's career was, you know, a great player as we know he is, his career was in, in trouble at that time. He hadn't won a ranking title for two and a half years before that um, amazing win at the German Masters where he was, I think, 4 0 down in the first round. Higginson. So Higginson ended up winning 5 4. And that, that changed everything in him because he saw that the work he'd been doing with Steve Peters for a few months was actually working. It could translate to Winning silverware trophies and and it completely turned his career around. It Effectively gave him a second career, I think. But he still, even though he'd won in Berlin, he still wasn't sure whether it was going to work over 17 days on the biggest stage at the World Championship, the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. And I think that that match against Robertson was was huge in that regard. I think it made him think. You know, Neil Robertson was a real contender for the world title that year. He really thought he was going to win a second world title. Um, he, he, was, he was sure of it. He, he thought he'd beat Ronnie and he thought he'd win the world title. And, you know, Ronnie had to play pretty near his absolute best in that game, uh, which, is why, which is why I picked it, because I, you know, I, I thought that was a really good match. But also the, the extra significance of the, the Steve Peters factor and, and the belief it had given him that he could go on and, and have a sort of second career. And when you, when you look at what's happened since, he, he has. I mean, he obviously won that world title, he's won another one. Um, you know, more Masters titles, other titles and we might not have had that, had it you know, let's give credit to uh, Django Fung Ronnie's former manager, I think he was very persistent trying to get him to speak to Steve Peters mm-hmm. and it was rejected, that advice, for a long time but without that, I'm not sure we would have seen some of the, the brilliance in the last five years that we, that we have seen This is again,
0: I think one of the strengths of the book you hear these little
1: stories, you know
0: so and so persuaded me to speak to him and also you mentioned Neil Robertson there's a chapter on his match with Martin Gould and he's talking about, I love the little bit where he says, you know, he he checked out his apartment but he asked asked to keep his luggage in there just so he could come and sort of pick it up, because he expected to be on the way home, didn't he? And Martin as well, good sport for talking about it, because I'm sure when you rang up he knew what you were going to ask about, and writing a book about the Crucible, great matches, he knows he's in there. I guess the only thing you can say from his point of view, at least he's been part of something special, okay, it's finished the wrong way for him, but he was part of a, an extraordinary match there. And, and that, and and also you make the point that it's right. It wasn't just about the play that day. It was about what had happened with Steve Davis and John Higgins because they've seen Davis beat Higgins, and they know they're going to be a big favourite to beat Steve in the quarter So they're playing almost for place in the semis.
1: That's right. No, I mean that was the, the timings of those two, um, you know, those two <coughs> last 16 matches made made that the case that you have this amazing sort of event with um, Steve Davis. Beating John Higgins, I think I think it was the Saturday afternoon. I haven't got it in front of me, but um, well, it was then, the
0: morning. They were the morning, and then oh, the morning, and right. Martin
1: were on the afternoon. Yeah, that's and right. Martin I mean, tried to avoid the score, but someone told him. Someone told him. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, because he said also that day he was trying to avoid the Tottenham Man United score. He was a big Tottenham fan, and, and then but someone told him Tottenham had lost to, to Manchester United as well. So he, was, he wasn't doing too well on the not being told the score front. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. There, there is a subplot. Both players mention it. Subplot to that was that whoever won was going to. Was going to be playing a you know fifty-two-year-old, albeit six-time world champion and a complete legend of the sport, but they had a the match against Steve Davis for a place in the semi-finals. And you know, without in any way disrespecting Steve Davis, both of them would have would have fancied that job. Uh, no, no question about it at that, at that particular time. As long as they they sort of perhaps didn't make one or two of the mistakes that, that, that John Higgins made in in that game. Um, but it's uh, I, I think interesting. Neil, Neil Robertson was delighted because he thought it put more pressure on on Martin Gould he thought that Martin Gould having not been in that position before might feel that pressure a little more than, than he would about potentially playing sort of you know sort of Steve Davis for a place in the semifinals and you know uh, I think without without you know we'll never we'll never know one hundred percent. And I, I think the thing that I remember about that match is just how well Martin Gould played at the beginning. He was absolutely brilliant. He he played superbly in that match for sort of two sessions. You know, I mean Neil Robertson, you know in his in the book sort of says that he, he was almost like he had the soul of, of Ronnie O'Sullivan, um, and that if Ronnie O'Sullivan had been playing that well, everyone would have been waxing lyrical about it. And he, he was that good. You know, he I think Martin Gould is someone who, who craves the stage. The you know he loves uh, you know he, he says he's a private person off the table and I think that's that's true but but on the on the table I think he loves a crowd he loves an arena you know no surprise to me that he won the German masters in yeah. in, in that amazing temper arena which you know I know you've been to and I've been to and it's it's an incredible place on you know on the one table to play play snooker in front of two and a half thousand people so there's no there's no surprise to me that you know, Martin Gould shone on that stage and it, I think it's the same. You give him a chance and he's, he's up for it. You know, he's, he's capable of that. But that's your classic sort of comeback. That's one of the elements of a great match, I think. Um, a huge favourite against a big underdog and a comeback. Two, two strikes, two big elements in a great match. Mm. And, and, and that you know, that is one that I think most people who watch won't, won't forget in a hurry. It's interesting, Bill seemed to suggest that when he got on the practice table even before the last session, he said he was
0: struggling even then, which suggests there's something psychological about you don't get it in any other tournament being ahead overnight and you must go to bed thinking on the one hand, great, you know I need two frames to win and on the other hand what if it goes wrong? I'll never get over it and we saw that of course Paul under ken Doherty match as well but Paul's 15-9 up coming into the last afternoon and of course it turns around and Ken wins
1: Yeah, it's so big you, you can have too long to think about it I'm sure and as you say it, maybe you're better off playing morning and evening at mm. the same day but having having the night to think about it um, perhaps not getting a good night's sleep he said his, his quotes were, were strong on that. He, he said when he went into the practice room just before the, the final session, it was almost like his arm sort of wasn't there or didn't belong to him, and he, he had a very bad sort of feeling and sort of premonition about what was about to happen. And you know, sad, sadly for, for Martin, that proved proved to be the case. And you know, Neil Robertson, once he I think he he, he got to within a couple of frames, he, he thought he thought he had him mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, he's, when he gets on a roll as we know he's a very very difficult player to stop
0: mm. Judd Trump
1: is a lot of people's pick uh, this year he's having a great season as we know
0: and he features in the semi-final well he features twice semi-final and, and the final in 2011 but he, he was said about when he beat Ding in the semis that that year he was carefree you know he was enjoying it he was expecting to beat everybody but he also said that he's not been like that since because of course now he's become a player people are expecting to win and certainly this year a lot of people are tipping him I was interested that he was saying that he does feel the nerves there and I thought it was, it was good of him to admit that because they must all do i mean it's such a big deal isn't it
1: yeah I think I think that's right and I mean that you know that that year was um, you know listen it was a great it was a great semi final it was a great final it was a for, for trump it was a great six weeks you know with what he did in you know his breakthrough Title at the China Open, and I, you know, I, I do believe, and I, hopefully it's the way I've written the book. but I do believe context is important in these things. I think you know, before you actually get to the, you know, who pots which balls in a match, you, you sort of look at the, whether it's the season or the, there are key moments that provide, you know, appropriate and fitting context for, for these things. And you know, with Judge Trump that year in 2011, it was it was winning the China Open. I think he struggled in qualifying. He's a big stage, you know, big atmosphere player. He, he struggled, as, as Ding had, to be fair, in his early career with the, the sort of cubicles and the qualifying and it just wasn't his, wasn't his thing, you know, and he wasn't playing his best there. And then on a very rare occasion where he managed to get out of that and get onto the big stage, the pressure was was so great because he wasn't doing it that often that he sometimes it all got too much for him and he, he, he didn't shine. So that win in China just before the 2011 World Championship was absolutely huge for Chuck Trump. And it gave him that confidence, and he just surfed that wave of confidence, as we know, all the way through that tournament. I think it was Neil Robertson, wasn't it, he beat in the, in the first round, yeah. which was obviously defending champion. That was a big win. Um, and then being... Uh, I, 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 the quotes that I like about that particular chapter were about his relationship with Ding mm. and the way he saw him as a almost rival. Like a sort of,
0: like, almost like a grudge match, in a way.
1: Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I, that wasn't something that I particularly sort of stirred up or mm. probed, or you know, I admit to occasionally being guilty of that uh, <laughs> in the past in my job.
0: But,
1: um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I didn't fish for that in any way. It was very genuine and it came out completely unprompted. That he, he said you know, he was obviously a couple of years behind Ding. He'd seen Ding win win big, mm. win, win young and he wanted a bit of that action and he, 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 you know, he had something to prove I think he was a little bit of maybe sort of China's number one and he felt he was the sort of you know, perhaps the heir apparent uh, in the UK and uh, it, it was, there was definitely a lot on it for, for Judge Rumble I mean, he's very honest about that in that, in that chapter that, that it wasn't just you know, it was two young players and you never know, you know as we've seen you know, we've already talked about it, you never know when the chance is going to come along you, know, you might get other chances or it might be that that is your chance you know, when you look back in 20 years time and you had to grab it. And I think both of them were, were quite aware of that. But despite that, they shrugged the pressure off. And it was one of the most, I think, sort of joyous matches that I can remember watching at the Crucible in a, a latter stage. They both of them just absolutely went for it. They both played incredibly well. It was a real toe-to-toe, you know, toe-to-toe match and just thoroughly enjoyable um, f- for them and, and both players. You know, for both players and, and the audience and, you know, anyone anyone who was involved involved. Um, but no, you, you're right. He, he he has, I think, since slightly curbed some of those Attack instincts, not not completely, and I, I don't think he not think he, he ever should. Um, but to win titles, occasionally you, you do just have to add things to your game, and I, I think I think Judge Trump has done that. I think he has added things to his game, and you know this year you only have to look at the sort of bookmakers' odds, and you know as we speak, the, the China Open's uh, yet to conclude, but uh, you know. I just was doing some stats this morning that you know, reaching the quarterfinals of the China Open, he'd won nine matches in a row, 21 out of 23, just coming <laughs> off winning the Players' Championship. He's right up there in the, the betting for the World Championship with Mark Shelby and, and Ronnie O'Sullivan with people like sort of John Higgins and Ding just behind. You know, he, is, he is a serious contender for a first world title this year. and um, I think that is as a result of, of making these little changes that your, your question was about.
0: So let's look ahead then to this year's uh, World Championship. It's going to be special. It's the 40th anniversary of the, uh, the Crucible. It's actually the 90th anniversary of the World Championship itself because it started in uh, 1927. I, I mean, are you ready for it? Because it's a long haul, isn't it? You know, you're there all day, every day, and it doesn't just start on the first day. You've got all the previews. You've got the qualifying. It's, it's, it's a big
1: commitment. It's, I think for someone who's a, a journalist, and <clears throat> particularly if you're a journalist covering it for more than one paper, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. I mean, really, I, my Crucible probably starts at least three weeks before it kicks mm-hmm. off. And that's in the sort of accumulation of stories. I, I want stories that I can use perhaps on a quiet day's play. You know, sometimes the, the live play takes care of itself and they're great stories. But it's good to, good to go there with quite a few up your sleeve. And as you say, all the nice previews as well. So I've, I've been busy sort of dealing with that, you know, the last few days really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, 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 will, I will be going up. I won't be there for the whole of the qualifiers, but I always go up for that, that, that last day, the, the judgment day. Because that, that Wednesday is almost a sporting event in itself oh, yeah. The, the, the sort of pressure and attention is, is incredible to witness And the, the emotions of the players sort of coming off Win or lose, whether they've made it to the Crucible you know, Sometimes for the first time as a debutant Or, or they're an experienced former world champion Who's, who's you know, missed out and they're absolutely devastated Is, is, is quite something to, be, to behold And I think this This new qualifying system of the, you know, even everyone from world number seventeen downwards having to play the three matches has only intensified it. I I have to say, the last couple of years, I've been up there that day. I think it's made it, it's made it from their point of view worse um, uh, or more, more pressurised. I think it it gives the, perhaps the lower ranked players a a bit more of a chance, um, but for the, you know, the guys. Now, it was impressive last year. It was a bit of an exception where Ding breezed through qualifying and ended up sort of having a very, very you know, best ever run at the Crucible. Um, but that's, I think that that's the exception rather than the rule these days. It's a, it's a tough old, tough old school to get through, and um, great for drama, great to report on, but really tough on the players. Yeah, very much so. But but I'd
0: like to say great drama for for snooker fans, and it is like it's like a sort of mini world championship in itself no, there's no one winner but there is a prize at the end of it and that's of course uh, to get to the crucible uh, let's just talk you, say, you said that you, the first one you covered in full was 2004 so that's what 13 years ago in that time the media landscape has changed hasn't it just talk about that because as you say we no longer have so many newspaper journalists there there's a lot of people doing online stuff there's increasingly people from China come over but it has changed hasn't it
1: yeah, no, it really has changed. I mean, there's, there's still—I mean, there's a, there's a hard core. You obviously have a sort of the, the domestic radio. There's uh, a good presence. So the BBC, like George Riley, Jamie, Jamie Broughton. There, um, the, I'll say the yeah, the written the presence of, of written UK journalists has, has 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 very much gone down over that time, uh, which is a shame. <coughs> and you know it's. It's you know, it's, a, it's a battle to get it into the papers, and there's lots of reasons for that. I think some some editors were sort of inclined against snooker, which is a real shame. But you, you know what do you do? Do you give up or do you keep fighting the fight? I mean, I'm, you know, if I got demoralised about having snooker ideas rejected by editors, I'd I'd have, I'd have jumped into the nearby nearby <laughs> Thames by now a long time ago. Because uh, no, it, listen, it can be difficult, but hopefully you keep knocking on the door. You do get the coverage. At least you know at the World Championship there is a residual interest, yeah. and they will at least cover that properly. But if, as you say, I think probably the those missing people, if you like, have, have been replaced by by other people. a uh, Big contingent from China, but not just China. You know, you know, from your work in Eurosport, how popular it is across the you know across the the, the continent. And you know, there are people there from a lot of Eastern European countries now as well. Journalists, um, and that, and that's great. You know, that's 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 very positive and it's fun it's nice to spend time with those people and um, try and get to as many of those countries as possible sometimes you know it can be, can be difficult but um, you know there are places where there are ranking events or you know former PTCs that I would, I would still love to go to Romania is definitely one of them just to sort of see and try and get those features and, and the good thing about the, qualifi- the qualifiers is you, you know you've always got new things I mean sort of we were talking before we started sort of recording the interview about sort of um, Hossein Bafay from from Iran. I and mean, that's he's someone who interests me. I would love to, you know, write something about him. Hopefully, he could win his first qualifying match. And and, and as you, but uh, you know, as you say that the, the online the online side of it has burgeons, burgeoned. Um, I think maybe as a beat reporter on snooker your, your role has, has changed because if you had the contacts and you had all the contacts with players and referees and you were the only person who, who got the stories now a lot of the people that you spoke to have got social media yeah, they, they, yeah. they put it straight out there themselves so I think to, to get something new and exclusive is not impossible but it's probably more difficult mm. these days than it used to be I was
0: going to say because that's a relationship between newspaper journalists and the online guys I think and it's often not their fault they just don't know but they, they, they think that if someone says something they just put it out into the into the ether but quite often you guys in the newspapers you need like a story for the next day that isn't just so and so it's so and so and you don't want it like on the internet within seconds
1: yeah, I mean, I think. Listen, I, I have it in football as well, where you know, I, I mean, I, I was, you know, I went to the Belgium Greece game uh, last week, and I was interviewing players, like you know, in the mix zone, and sometimes you get hold of the player, you ask all the questions, and someone will lean over from behind you, record it all, yeah. and put it all straight out online, and you were planning it for the paper, and you know, you have, this is, but you have to be aware of those sort of things. I think a lot of the a lot of the online people are are respectful anyway. I think yeah. if you if you sort of say, look, you know. Perhaps we've asked these questions but we've asked it for a reason we, we know there's a quiet day in a couple of days is that okay to just hang on to that till but um, you know I think most people realize why and then I'm very happy to play ball on that you know, it might be the odd person who comes in for the first time who who perhaps doesn't you know doesn't sort of quite quite understand that but you know this is as, as you quite correctly say the nature of uh, sort of reporting and, and the news that's out there has, has changed and you know it's quite it's quite difficult to hang on to stuff because mm. it's, it's it's about now isn't it and these this stuff yeah. is out there straight away and so it's it's probably slightly more difficult to do that and also
0: so much happens on twitter now i mean last year there was that bust up with trump and, and dominic dale which is just like a twitter thing and you, i guess you have to sort of monitor that as well you have to be aware of what people are saying there because obviously the general public are reading it and they, they know yeah. things are happening
1: the general public are reading it and you know people who could supply it to newspapers are reading it so i that's probably one of the more grudging aspects of my <laughs> job i I do have to. I do have to monitor Twitter all the time. And if I'm, if I'm completely honest, I'd, I'd rather not. But I, I don't enjoy choice, sure because it's a medium. It's, you know, it's a good medium. Players are, are, are good on there. They 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 say they get things off their chest and they um, you know they're very they're very frank on there. And they no, listen. If you're you know, doing trying to do a professional job, you absolutely have to keep an eye on on Twitter and, and sort of Facebook and some of the other stuff. But. Um, in a way, I'd, r- I'd rather be speaking to people speak direct But um, no, I think we've, that's, as you said, that's one of the obvious ways things have, things have evolved
0: Yeah, and didn't have all this in 1977 <laughs> When they first went to the Crucible Finally then, I'll, I'll ask you straight out Who's going to win it? Uh,
1: well, <laughs> I, I think it's between... I'd like to see a Mark Selby-Judge Trump final, and I think it might be Trump here this year.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, if you could make a case of so many. It's like an Agatha Christie play, isn't it? There's so many people who could end up uh, holding at the trophy. It's um, it's going to be fascinating. As the book was, congratulations again on the book. I'm sure snooker fans will really enjoy it, and it's great. I think it's just great to go back. It's not just nostalgia for the sake of it. It's actually detailed, and as I say, the accounts of the players adding sort of modern context to it. There are a lot of people listening to this who won't remember. They won't have been alive when some of these matches were played. That's right. But it's all part of the tapestry of the tournament, isn't it? And that, that continuity of being at the Crucible as well. It's all this has happened at the same venue.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I did. Yeah. I did take the sort of opportunity to devote chapter one to you know an account of, of how how the Crucible came to be chosen because we've all we've all enjoyed it and I think we you know we all we all enjoy it. You know, probably owe a little bit of a debt to. So Mike Watson, for, 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 yeah. for, for the you know, former promoter for, for finding it, and um, you yeah, know I think it, it explains very clearly how it came about, and it was almost by accident with his wife sort of Carol stumbling across it, visiting the theatre to see a, a theatre production, um, and and I think that that you know that really hopefully sets the tone for the rest of the book. It is, you know, as I said earlier, I think it hopefully is a celebration of, of the venue, the sport, and the world championship, and. Um, even if perhaps matches that you would have loved to be there aren't in there, then hopefully you'll you'll sort of get get that out of it. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to. Um, I think uh, it's going to be going to be on sale in the Crucible. I might even do a little Crucible only discount because the, the book's launched on the April the fourteenth, the before it all kicks off. Um, so uh, yes, if you're up there, then. Uh, come to the merchandise store and uh, there'll, be, there'll be copies there. Well, listen, there's one answer to not to, to matches not being in it. Volume
0: 2. That's got to be it because well, I hope it does, Hector, and thanks a lot for being on the podcast. It's that's been this. a real pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Stuka Scene Podcast. Just to say, this is the last podcast until after the World Championship. Obviously, it's a very busy period coming up with the qualifiers and the Crucible itself, but I'll be back. Literalmente en la noche del final, después de que todo se ha acabado, para revisar los 17 días. Así que espero que donde estás escuchando el Championship, o sea, donde estás escuchando, o sea, en la BBC, en Eurosport, o donde estás, te gusta y me verás después de que todo se ha acabado y se ha
1: acabado. Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera.